Well, good morning. It's, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, some of you may remember I've preached here a few times, and uh, we attended here during a brief transition in our life as well. And it's always uh, just such a privilege and an honor for me to come back and, and share this time with you. As long as I can tell you the secret and you'll keep it, this is actually my favorite place to preach. Um, you, so uh, don't, don't tell the church that I'm at now that, but... Um, the reason why I love it so much is I just feel comfortable here. I feel at peace. I feel at home. Uh, and, and so I feel like uh, I can get out of the way and let uh, Spirit speak through me. Uh, and so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here uh, again sharing with you. For those of you that don't know, uh, my name is Randy. Uh, I was in youth ministry in the Covenant denomination for a long time, first out in Portland, Oregon, and then here in Arvada for a few years. Uh, stepped down from that to pursue a, a master's of theology, which, given one hundred-page paper, I'm almost done. Um, so I've been meaning to start that actually. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, most recently, uh, I've been working at a coffee shop here in Arvada with with some good friends of mine, and uh, I actually just got hired on to teach uh, middle school boys Bible at Faith Christian Academy. So. <laughs> I'm excited about that and uh, getting back to hang out with youth and, and teaching the Bible some more. So I'll be doing that next year as I write a 100-page paper. So, uh, Through my time at the coffee shop, uh, I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of people. You get to see people from all walks of life. And you get to see them at all different points in their day, from the people who haven't woken up and put on their makeup yet to the people who are just really excited to see you at 4 or 5 in the morning. And... Uh, and uh, if you're like me and you, and you work with people a lot, you may have found that there are certain groups of people that you don't really like. And I know we're not supposed to say that, um, but there's one particular group of people that come into the coffee shop often, and, and, and I really can't stand them. Uh, they're, they're rude. They're kind of pretentious. Sometimes they disguise their pretension and politeness and kind of look at you and give you that tone that says, I really want light ice in my vanilla latte, please. And it gets really, it just, it grates on me. And they come in in groups, and you can see them coming, and I know who they are. And uh, the, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, and I just get so angry. These, uh, these are the Christians <laughs> that come into our coffee shop, of all people. And it, it's, it, it's, at first it amazed me, and then I began to get really frustrated because I know that I am not like those Christians. And then you begin to think about the way you say that and how you separate between who I am and who they are. And then you read 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ and realize, I may not act like them, but I am a part of them. And I am a part of this body of Christ, even when I disagree with how they act. And so it's been interesting to kind of uh, look deep inside myself and try to realize, why do I have this aversion to these Christian groups, these, these Bible studies that come in uh, because I should be excited about it, but because of, of the way that I see them treating me, I want to put distance between myself and them and say, I'm not that type of Christian. And I think this is actually uh, kind of a natural thing that happens to us and that we all could probably think about groups that we say, well, I'm not like that group. Uh, and it's, it's a natural thing that happens in our brain, and I did some kind of research on, on this. And I want to show you what I mean um, through a little illustration. So what's going to happen is we're going to throw up uh, a couple of words on the screen, and as you see the word, I want you to say it out loud, and we'll go through quite a few of them, and the goal is to say them out loud and then try to remember them. 
Um, don't write them down or anything right now, but it's, don't worry, you're not graded on the test. It's, it's, it's all for free. It's all for fun. Just an example. So when you see a word, say it out loud, and then I'll let you know what we're going to do from there. All right, so now, either with a piece of paper and, like, and a pen or something, see if you and your neighbors, or you guys can talk about it, how many of those words can you remember? Just write it down, however many you can remember. Or talk about it and discuss what you can remember. All right, just a little bit more time to see if you can come up with any more. All right. Now for the test, by a show of hands... How many of you wrote, said, or had a neighbor say the word sleep? Look around. Sleep was not one of the words. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'm so glad this worked. <laughs> oh. I, was a little, I was a little nervous. I tried, I tried this experiment a different way earlier this week, and it didn't work at all. Um, this is actually an experiment that was done. Uh, they, people would read those words and then uh, be asked to write down as much as they can remember. And almost everybody wrote down the word sleep. But there's words like bed and tired and yawn and peace. Everything that is around the word sleep that we, that we associate with sleep, uh, you said. So your, your brain is trying to do the work for you and not make it too hard. So it just says, okay. Okay, well, sleep, that's what we're talking about. And it groups it together. So what our brains naturally do is they group things that are similar together for us. What that means is when something is different, our brains also naturally disassociate with those things. That's why when you're confronted with um, a different viewpoint or a person who believes something different or, or, or even looks different from you, your brain disassociates and says, you're not like them. That doesn't belong to your group. This is why um, things like racism exist, because these are the issues that our brains deal with. And unless we understand and know how that's working, we can't overcome it. So the first step is knowing what we're supposed to do. Before ethics were a big deal, um, they did a bunch of experiments, and they took a bunch of 12-year-old boys. Somehow they got their parents' permission to take them to a summer camp that had never existed before. I mean, they didn't have the internet to Google it, I guess. They just convinced them that it was okay. Parents signed a waiver. Sent these kids to a summer camp. They took one group of kids up on one bus, one up on another bus. The first week, they kept the kids uh, separate. So they, they ate with the group they rode up with. They played with the group they rode up with. They came up with names and played uh, games and swam and, and did all these things with just the group they came up with. After a week's time, they combined the camp together. Now they're eating together. Now they're seeing each other more. And they're also competing. They introduced competition. So they're competing for little trinkets or candy or extra swim time or whatever motivates 12-year-old boys to compete. And what they found was within one day, hostility emerged towards the other group. All of a sudden, there was name-calling and jeering. All of a sudden, there was, we're going to beat you, we're going to beat you. And this competition caused a lot of strife. Pretty soon, that turned into pranking, you know, stealing the other person's trophies when they won. Uh, pretty soon, that turned into vandalism. Both cabins would, would go in at night and just destroy the other person's cabin and their stuff. Eventually, it got to the point where it almost turned violent. Again, ethics didn't exist at this point in social psychology. Uh, and what it, what it told 
the, the researchers is that when people are competing for resources of any kind, it could have been a piece of bubble gum, they tend to really get hostile in their disassociation. Right? So no longer is it like us versus them. We are now competing for life, and it gets hostile, and it gets violent, and it gets intense. They begin to see the other people, the them, as mere objects and not as human beings. And so this is what they discovered, and this is kind of what, what we all deal with as we form our own groups. Uh, like I said, again, it's, it's natural. If you look around, uh, if you, any given Sunday, if you're walking to a church, you would notice most everybody looks the same. Um, we, it's, it's based on our neighborhoods. It's based on our natural affinity towards people who are like us. Uh, and it just happens. But if we allow it to happen, when we are confronted with, with things that are different, we become hostile and even violent towards them. I want to show you what I mean in Scripture. If you'll flip in your Bibles to Amos, uh, Amos chapter 1, um, I believe it goes Hosea, Joel, Amos in the Old Testament. It was right before Obadiah. You maybe have never even read this book before. I didn't read it till my fourth year in seminary. So, um, Amos was a, was a prophet, and uh, he wasn't your typical sort of prophet, and we'll get to that um, in a second. Uh, but we're going to be going through the first two chapters of Amos because what's talked about in Amos is actually a really good indicator of, of some, some of that kind of disassociation that we tend to do um, in, in the way that we, we treat other people who are different from us. So if you're all there, Amos chapter 1, uh, I'll go ahead and read and you can just follow along silently um, in your Bibles or we'll have most of them, the verses up on the screen. So Amos chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. What he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures, and the, the pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So this is Amos. So Amos, he's uh, the who, what, when, and where in the next slide. Uh, Amos was not a professional Right, when it comes to prophets, prophets were often employed. They were, uh, they were hired by rulers to predict what they should do to fight in battle, whether they're going to win or not. And oftentimes, the prophets were paid to either lie or shut up. One of the two. Um, and Amos is not one of these. Amos just hears a word from the Lord. He's in, a, he's, in, he's in the south tending his sheep in his pasture and goes, i got to go tell the rulers of Israel this, and begins to walk up. And so he, uh, he begins to, to spout off this word of the Lord. Um, it says there's a large earthquake. This is equivalent to me saying, so it's a two years before the earthquake, right? This is equivalent to me saying two years before 9-11. Everyone in the room goes, oh, 1999. I know that. I know two years before 9-11. This was such a big earthquake, and it was so devastating that it became a point in history for them to mark time with. We actually have... Uh, research that shows that there was an earthquake around this time that Amos was writing. It's one of the ways that we date the book of Amos and authenticate it. Uh, and then he talks about lions roaring and thunder and, and, and mountains withering. None of these are good images, all right? From the very beginning, we see that something is going drastically wrong. And so then 
he gets into uh, talking about a lot of other nations. And I think what we have is uh, on the next slide. Oh, actually, I want to show you this really cool chart. So this uh, has the 10 periods of kind of Old Testament history before the Romans kind of come in. And it talks about the different people that are, uh, that are in charge. And you'll see down in the bottom left, there's an arrow and a split. And you see Judah and Israel. So this is the, this is the point of time where we are uh, in, in our story of Amos. Israel and Judah are divided. Um, they're not the same kingdom anymore. They have two different kings. That's why it talks about Josiah and Jeroboam. Um, if you read Second Kings, you'll kind of see how this happens. So the monarchy is divided. Um, Israel has not been destroyed by the Assyrians. Judah has not been exiled to Babylon um, yet. And so what we have here in this time where Judah and Israel and the divided monarchy is a time of prosper. Right? These nations of Judah and Israel are doing pretty well for themselves, especially Israel. Um, they, they're not slaves. They're not wandering. They have established their city. They're doing well. I think the next slide then um, has our verse. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to highlight a few things here um, in, the, in, the first, uh, in the first half of the second chapter um, for these first seven nations that Amos refers to. You'll notice um, this is, it, it follows a pattern. Uh, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Um, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. So the, the pattern is, this is what the Lord says. For three sins, even for four, I will not relent. I will not hold back my punishment. Um, here's what you did. You threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Uh, and then it says, so I will send fire on the house of Hazel. And, and God begins to explain through Amos, the type of punishment that's coming. The next nation is Gaza. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, and for four, I will not relent. Um, you took captive of whole communities and sold them to Edom. Um, so I will send fire. So I will punish. Right? Um, uh, so says the sovereign Lord. It also ends. So it says, um, you know, this is what the Lord says, and then ends with, this is what the Lord said. Uh, so number three is Tyre. This is what the Lord says, for three and for four, I will not relent because you sold whole communities of captives, dis- disregarding the treaty of the brotherhood. Um, and again, that one ends, I might have forgot to put that up there, but it ends with, um, you know, thus says the Lord. The next one, Edom, this is what the Lord says, for three and for four, I will not relent. Uh, talks about uh, what they did wrong and how God's going to punish them. The next one, Ammon. This is what the Lord says, for three and for four, I will not relent. Here's what I'm going to do, thus says the Lord. And then the next one, Moab. This is what the Lord says, for three, for four, this is what I'm going to do, thus says the Lord. And then the next one, Judah. This is number seven. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah and for four, I will not relent. Because they've rejected the law of the Lord. All right, Judah, one of the kingdoms of God, knew better, rejected the law that they knew. Um, they've not kept his decrees. They've been led astray by false gods, gods that their ancestors followed. So I'll send fire on Ju- Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. There's a couple things to notice. The reason why I didn't go into detail about the specific sins of each city is because these sins are actually literary devices. Um, we understand the grace of God enough to know that God's not counting our individual sins against us, but there's a broader picture um, of, of sin that Christ comes to take care of. And so what Amos is doing is Amos is using some literary devices to illustrate this point. One is a three and for four. 
Right? We see this again and again, all seven nations, um, for three grievances, for four, uh, I'm, I'm not going to forgive. Three plus four equals seven is a pretty significant number in the Bible. Um, it represents completeness. So when God rests on the seventh day, he worked for six, rest on the seventh, it represents completeness. If seven uh, represents for completeness, then eight is going to be something completely different, right? You would, you would either expect to not see an eight, or eight would stand for something in abundance. So we've had seven nations that Amos has, has called out. Because we've reached the completeness, that's the end of the sermon. Amos is done, so the audience thinks. But really, what Amos is doing, he's closing in on Israel. And on this next slide, I have a map that will kind of show this. You see this map starting up with, with Syria and Ammon and Moab and Edom, Philistia. All these are kind of surrounding. Tyre's up on the coast there. All these kind of surround. And then he gets up to Judah in his seventh one. And that's getting a little closer to home. And so if Israel's paying attention, they're counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, good. I'm glad you included Judah in there. We can't stand those guys. Like, clearly they're wrong. Sermon's over. Done. Applaud. Go home. That's not what Amos had in mind. So Amos continues, uh, uh, or before, before we go to what Amos continues, it's important to point out to you, um, just like it said that Judah had forgotten the law, Israel had forgotten something as well. Israel had forgotten the reason they existed as a nation. In uh, Genesis 12, chapter 2 is where or Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, um, is where God is speaking to Abraham. And, and, and God says to Abraham, uh, I will make you a great nation, right? I will, I will bless you, I will make your name great, um, and you will be a blessing. Two things here. One, God's the one doing the blessing, right? Abraham's not supposed to go out and earn all this stuff on his own. God, he's supposed to rely on God to provide, Right? Not supposed to manipulate systems. This is why he gets in trouble whenever he gives his wife over to the ruler of the day. Because right? he's manipulating the system. Um, second, it's so that the nation of Israel can be a blessing. Israel forgot that they were supposed to be a blessing. And so God comes at them uh, in uh, Amos chapter 2, um, starting in verse 6. And I don't have this up there because it's kind of long. So I'll read it, and if you have uh, in your Bibles, you can follow along as well. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel and for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They thought the sermon was over, right? They're clapping, they're applauding. And then Amos goes, For three and for four, I will not relent of my anger for Israel. You can kind of imagine the clapping just stopping. And he goes on. He says, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, trample the heads of the poor and upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. I destroy the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded, them, commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Again, it was a profession at that time, so they can actually tell the prophets not what to do, not Amos. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength. 
The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warrior will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. There are some significant differences with uh, Amos' indictment on Israel. First, this is the eighth nation indicted. If you ever went past the number seven in this tradition, you went from completion to abundance, right? So if anything, Amos should be saying, you know, for three and for four, Israel, you guys are great. But instead, he uses the, he flips it on its head and says, no, for three and for four, you're not exempt from this. Uh, And he lists multiple offenses. In each of the other nations, we only see one or two. Uh, With Israel, he just lays it all out there. Uh, And then I love, my favorite is the rhetorical question in verse 11, where God, uh, you know, explains all that he's done. And he says, is that not true? And then doesn't wait for a response and says, but this is what you did. Uh, Amos is clearly not giving the people a chance to respond. Uh, God is, is controlling this conversation. And it's really, really important that they listen. Ultimately, what we find in the book of Amos is that they should have known better. Uh, in the very next chapter, it starts, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family. I, I brought you up out of Egypt. Quotes. All right? That means this is a common saying that was said in the day. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. That's the common saying. What follows that saying is, Therefore, I will bless you. I will keep you. I'll cause my face to shine upon you and grant you peace. Right? I'm gonna, you're going to be a prosperous nation. Instead, what Amos does is say, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you. Israel should have known what they were doing. The sin of Israel, if, if you read back through and you take some time, you realize they're selling people into slavery. Right? They're, they're taking... Uh, things as pledges and, and charging outrageous interest, which, which was not allowed by Jewish standards. They're keeping people in debt. They're, when it talks about lying on the garments, um, somebody's garment, somebody's coat was all they had to keep warm with at night. And the rule was you had to give it back. So if someone said, hey, I'm going to borrow this money from you, take my cloak, um, I'll pay you back. What they were doing is they were keeping those for themselves. Um, the, the specific sins don't matter as much as the overall thing that Israel neglected to do, and that was, one, rely on God for provision, and two, be a blessing. Instead of taking the provision, instead of using this time of prosper that God had given Israel and blessing people, they were disassociating. They were saying, I have money, you don't. I'm going to take whatever little you have, and I'm just going to keep it. I'm going to tell the prophets, hey, don't bother saying anything because we're pretty comfortable with this way of life right now. When make the Nazarites drink wine, this, this, this religious system that was supposed to be pure and never touch wine, they're forcing them to do this. Forcing people to do things against their will, against their religion. Israel had forgotten that God was one who was in control of them prospering and that they were supposed to be a blessing. Instead, they disassociated themselves um, so that they could um, get whatever they wanted. 
What's important about learning from the nation of Israel and their mistakes is exactly what we began talking about. It's our tendency to disassociate because we should know better. Right? In the, uh, in the next slide, um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 12. Right? We all know this verse. You know, in the body of Christ, there are many parts. People are different in the body, and we should know, we should understand that. We still work together. We work together for the good of God. The interesting thing about this, though, is we often will stop there and say, okay, body of Christ. So that means whoever is an actual believer, and we define who is a true believer and who's not, and we stop there. And so then we begin to disassociate again. Oh, that church down the street, they're not true believers because they believe in infant baptism, or they believe in believer baptism, and it's fights all throughout history that we've disassociated ourselves with. The reality of humanity is this. We all have the same breath. That breath uh, is talked about in Genesis as the ruah, or the spirit of God. If you're breathing, you have a little bit of the spirit of God in you. If you have blood coursing through your veins, and blood is talked about all over the Bible as the thing that gives life, you know, it's something that God gives us, then there's something similar there. And here's, here's the thing that I think most people make the mistake on. They, they think that somehow magically they become part of the image of God when they believe in Jesus. But you are born into the image of God. You were created as the image of God. Therefore, every human being that we encounter, no matter what they look like or what different views they have on anything, is somehow bearing the image of God. Is somehow connected to us by the breath and the blood that they have coursing through their veins. And so we should know better. You know, I talked about those boys at the beginning of, of, of the sermon, and uh, as it started to get violent, the researchers decided, well, we should probably intervene before this gets too bad. And what they did is they, they piled all the boys on a bus, and they began to drive the bus up the hill, a very steep hill. And the bus broke down, um, again, before ethics. So they made all the boys get out, and push the bus up the hill. Very dangerous. Uh, but it was the 50s. Everyone was doing it, right? Um, and so, they, so what happens is these boys push this bus. They get to the top of the hill. They complete the task. They're so excited. They're high-fiving. They're chest-bumping. Everything's just so excited. From that moment on, when they had accomplished that hard task together, there was no longer any barriers. It was no longer us and them. It was we. And it became we. And it became, they became so united that they made the, the camp uh, bus them back home on the same bus. They didn't want to go back on separate buses. They were all friends. They achieved something together. And so overcoming these obstacles brings people together. Fear, the fear of the differences between people are what drives us away. There's some dark history um, surrounded by these disassociations. Uh, one of those dark histories is the fact that when cotton prices fell um, in, the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when cotton prices fell, which means people had to compete for business, that's when, peop- that's when black people were lynched the most. That's when black people were killed the most because they were competition. And as the white people, they disassociated and said, well, they're not really human. Another thing that happens is uh, immigration, right? Immigration is only a bad thing for people 
when unemployment is high, when all of a sudden we're competing for jobs, we don't want people to immigrate. And it's these types of issues when we disassociate ourselves and we say, well, it's more important that we disassociate and we stand away from people and we find people that are different with us and say they need to go their own way that these issues arise. And they arrive in time of trial, in times where we're trying to, uh, to, to, to fight for something. Um, and, 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 and fighting for a job and being violent is just as silly as these kids being violent over trophies and packs of gum. And so, if we learn anything from the book of Amos, it's that we should know better. We should know that within us, um, there is a, a, a connection um, that we are born into, regardless of the differences of viewpoint, regardless of the differences how we view um, how we view each other, uh, and that's one of the great things about the communion table. Uh, and I love the way that, that y'all do communion here, be, having people serve, uh, because uh, sometimes it might mean that you have to take communion from somebody that that you don't like, um, <laughs> and. Uh, hopefully, hopefully today's not the case because it's Justin and I serving. Uh, but, but I love that. And I've, I've had to wrestle with that before. I've had to walk up. Uh, and it was, I don't know if it was the shortest line or where I was at. And, and I had to take communion from somebody who I really didn't like. And I had a major problem with. And there's something about taking communion um, together um, w- with each other or taking communion from people that it equalizes everything. It reminds us all that we're part of something bigger. They were part of, of something that Christ has already done. The unification of the body has already happened, and now we begin to celebrate it and we begin to fight for it whenever we see that it's not happening. So as we, as we come to, to take communion today, uh, I would encourage you to, to think about those groups of people that you try to disassociate yourself with, and then as you take communion, um, be willing to, to, to give that up to the Lord and ask if there's anything you can do Um, to unify what's going on. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to take communion together. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word um, and to worship together. We pray that that this would be a lasting thing for us, that communion would uh, be something that solidifies the worship that's been done here today, um, and that it wouldn't be done, but it would continue throughout the week Uh, as you continue to prod us into the things um, that you have and the things that you are working on right now in our world, um, that you would have us join.